you leaders and kids. The writing is on the wall. This is part seven in our series in the book of Daniel. So we're looking at chapter five in our series. When we say the writing is on the wall, we mean that there are clear signs that something unpleasant is going to happen soon. So, for example, a boss might say to an employee, unless you start work on time, the writing is on the wall for you. Maybe you've heard that from your boss. And the expression actually comes from the incident in the passage before us. That's where the saying comes from. Now, in the previous chapters, we delved into Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We saw how obsessed he was with his own grandeur and legacy. God finally brought him to a place of humility by having him live with the animals of the field for seven years because of God's chastisement. After this experience, he looked up to God and he was restored. It appears that he finally got the message. Now, between the end of last chapter, chapter 4, and the beginning of this one, some 23 years have come and gone, along with three kings who have already come and gone. Nebuchadnezzar the Great is dead, but Daniel, though now an old man, is still alive. The Babylonian kingdom is now much weaker than it was during Nebuchadnezzar's heyday. After many years of fighting for world dominance, the power is tilting from the Babylonians towards the Medes and the Persians, led by King Cyrus the Great. If you want to know where all that is happening uh, geographically, it's roughly Persia is Iran and Iraq is Babylon. The only place that remained to be conquered by the Persians was the capital Babylon itself, the Great Babylon. It's October 539 BC. And even though historical records tell us that there was a lot happening in the geopolitical fronts at at this time, Daniel doesn't really say much about that. He's more interested in giving us the spiritual dimension of why the reason, the ultimate reason why it's all happening. And he points to man's foolish pride and God's sovereign power. If he, if Daniel were writing today, he would be telling us the same thing and urging us to be prepared for the writing is on the wall for our own civilization. Interestingly, critics of Daniel, and there have been many, I'm talking about the textual critics, once claimed that this part of Daniel was wrong and they said, oh, there is another mistake here because there was no extra biblical evidence for the existence of a King Belshazzar. According to them, We can't believe the Bible unless there is outside confirmation. Then, around 1880, some cylinders with 
writings on them, uh, re- recordings from King Nabodinus, Nabonidus, were found. They confirm his son was co-regent in Babylon while Nabodinus lived in another city and fighting the Persians. It then makes sense that Belshazzar and his father are kings, co-regents, so this is why he offers the third place and not the second place to Daniel. So it appears that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar through his daughter, the Queen Mother. Uh, Again, as we can see, given enough time, the Bible proves doubters wrong again. So in verses 1 to 4, as we look at our text this morning, let's delve into it. I call this part, let's party. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives, concubines drank from them and as they drank the wine they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood and stone. It's verse 4. So historians tell us that on this very night, on this very night, the Persians, they had surrounded, they were on the outskirts of the city of Babylon. The, the city was totally surrounded and everyone in the city knew about it. Yet Belshazzar was apparently so confident in the defences and the, and the vast supplies in his storehouses, they said that he, had a, he had about two years' supply of food that he wasn't troubled in the slightest. The city was protected by a double wall. The inner wall was six metres wide with carriages running on the top. It ran for miles around it. It had defensive towers every 20 metres along the wall. A few metres outside of that wall was a four metre thick outer wall and another 20 metres outside of that wall was a moat, moat filled with water, connected, supplied by the river Euphrates, which ran also, so they had enough water, it ran through the city. This is the river that Darius, the Persian, he actually diverted it and entered the city so that on the riverbed that was now dry, that's how he was able to get into the city that night. As the saying goes, Nero fiddled while Rome burned and Belshazzar ignored the pressing military realities outside because he was so sure of his defences. Hubris has been the Achilles heel of many empires, hasn't it? And the party that the king was having was a way of diverting attention from from the events outside of the walls and and to, in a way, lift the spirits of the city. And to have a good party, you need three things. You need food, wine and women. The debauchery intensified. They would have been partying all day. and, And they were quite inebriated as the party went on and on, and the judgments start faltering. So the king orders that the vessels of gold and silver be brought out 
for his drinking party. These were the ones that were taken from Jerusalem, from the temple. First, you know, as they brought these holy goblets, first, you know, and and everybody's sort of saying, ooh, ah, look at those. First the king, then his wives and concubines, then all the nobles of Babylon joining the act of desecrating by drinking from these holy goblets that were specifically only set apart for the priests of the temple. So the sinful pride of the king has reached new lows. And someone commented by saying, while Nebuchadnezzar achieved greatness, all that King Belshazzar was able to arrange was a drinking party. One lesson, one important lesson from history is that as society continues to decay, rather than seek to turn things around, somebody says, okay, stop, enough is enough, right? Sin actually accelerates and more degenerate parties will appear on the scene. It's happening right here, right now, as people from all over the world gather in Sydney for a month-long pride celebration of the Borch lifestyle being celebrated and encouraged and promoted in the libraries, in the schools, in the halls of parliament. The writing is on the wall. Let's shake Verses 5 to 12. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. At first the king probably thought he was seeing things, you know, drink too much, start seeing things. But the party stopped. Dead silence in the room. This was no illusion just reserved for one person, the king, because everybody could see the same thing. His complexion changed. That phrase in verse 6, get this, that phrase in verse 6, his legs became weak, could also be translated, his bowels gave way. Basically, he soiled himself. Just, just as soon as it had, had appeared, the finger vanished. But the words remained. What a way to end the party, right? They came for a drunken orgy and suddenly things got serious. Nobody bargained for this. Now everybody would have understood the words that were written on the plaster because they were written in Aramaic, the language of the day. And the the thing is, what did they mean? So he immediately summons the best and the brightest with the promises of great reward for whoever solves this riddle. Kings and leaders 
tend to surround themselves, just like Nebuchadnezzar, tend to surround themselves with counsellors or yes-men who think like them and tell them what they want to hear. Happens in Canberra, happens in Macquarie Street, happens everywhere. Happens even in leadership in churches. Surround yourself with yes-men. But all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't solve the dream or the riddle again. In another part of the palace, the queen mother was ready for bed. She was used to the noise. What she wasn't used to was the sudden silence. What happened? She walks in, sees the writing on the wall and remembers the only man who was able to help her father interpret the dreams, his name was Daniel. But he wasn't at the party. It should not be a surprise that Daniel and his friends, if they were still alive, were not invited to this party. Maybe because they were old men now, or maybe because of their religious views. About 150 years ago from today, uh, the Congressional London preacher Joseph Parker picked up on this, on this absence. And, and I quote, this is what he says, he says, When the world throws an orgy, the children of God are not invited. We don't fit in and our values would just be a nuisance when the world wants to party. But let a marriage break up, let cancer hit, let the children get in trouble, or the career hit the rocks, who do they call? They call the faithful men and women who know the Lord. I can assure you that this has been my experience as a pastor. When life comes tumbling down, the people who had no time for God, no time for church, will turn to you for support and seek answers. Yes, Along as the role of a pastor and many of my colleagues know about all this, that you give them time, you give them support as much as you can, you tell them about God and, and you hope that they take your words seriously and seek God, turn their life around through this experience. Sometimes they do, many times they don't. Let's forget verses 13 to 24. Verse 18. Your Majesty the Most High gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Then, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. And here is the clincher. Though you knew all this. Last week, we saw in the previous chapter how the Lord was exceedingly patient and not just 
last week, the week before and chapters before, patient and gracious with, with Nebuchadnezzar who through the first four chapters, just time after time, he just didn't get it. There were many years of pride and resistance to God's leading until he taught him a very, very harsh lesson through his insanity. And then when he looked up to God, he was restored, he humbled himself, restored and told the world about it. He gave his testimony so that everybody would know who God is. Now, we may have expected that when we come across to his descendants, that a similar pattern of patience and forbearance would would unfold, but not so. And here Daniel, I don't know if it was because he was getting old, you know how old people tend to be a little, you know, cranky at times. You know, maybe they got him out of bed, you know. Here Daniel is more like a prosecuting attorney than a concerned counsellor. And, and Daniel had a, a, a lot of time for King Neb. We saw in the last chapter how he was disturbed when he, in the last chapter how he was disturbed by, by what was going to happen to him. But, but Daniel has a lot less time for his arrogant grandson, for this young punk. And this half-drunk, staggering monarch did not impress him at all. You see... Belshazzar knew, there's that word, he knew the incredible story of God's patience, kindness and mercy shown to his granddad. He should have known that the Most High God rules. And because he had a greater revelation, he had a greater responsibility. This means that Belshazzar's sin wasn't rooted in ignorance. It was rooted in knowledge, but ignored, forgotten knowledge. He should have been convicted and humbled by the knowledge that he possessed. It should have led him to, to repentance, but he persisted anyway and got deeper and deeper into it. In the end, he presumed upon God's patience and grace and stored up wrath for himself. And this is the point that the Apostle Paul makes in his letter to the Romans. This is what he says in Romans 2, verses 4 to 5. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a remarkable passage that will take a lot to, to get through, but just think about the consequence of that. Not storing up riches, storing up wrath. Now, 
I'm going to be very frank here, guys. I'm not going to pull any punches. Let the chips fall where they may, right? Many of us have grown up in Christian homes. We heard the great stories and conversions of our fathers and grandfathers of how they came to know the Lord, how God delivered them through trials, with the miracles in our family. I can certainly attest that to mine. Elizabeth Ford can say the same thing about her father. And just hearing some of the story, we rejoice with God at the goodness in our forebears. And we have been blessed by that. We have heard so that we've heard all that stuff, all that knowledge, all the stories. And if not from them, we've heard it in church, in Sunday school, in youth group. And if you go to a a school, maybe in scripture in school, if you go to religious school, you've heard it. You've probably read the Bible. Let me ask you, how many more sermons do you want to hear before you repent of your rebellion and turn your heart toward God? Your problem is not lack of knowledge. Stop the excuses. Stop playing ignorant that no one told you, that no one challenged you. There are no innocent victims of sin in heaven. They're all in hell. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In heaven there is only room for sinners saved by grace. And if you call yourself a Christian, start living like one while there is still time. Stop storing up wrath for God's judgment. Which comes next. Let's face the music. Verses 25 to 30. Now here is what these words mean. This is what Daniel is saying. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, earlier in our series, I mentioned that this this whole part of Daniel was actually originally written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. On the surface, these words in Aramaic refer to weights or measurements in decreasing value. The mene is a mena. The tekel is a shekel, the parsin is a half shekel. But there's obviously a deeper meaning here. And it's a wordplay, a a riddle of sorts. And it's based, that is based on on the word's verbal form. So this is what Daniel discloses through God's revelation to him. The interpretation is in this descending fashion. So first, it's your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balance and your kingdom is is given over. There may be an additional word play with the word parsing because parsing could also refer to Persia, the kingdom that would take over that very night. Okay, Paul, so, okay, that's fair enough. But what does that mean for... For us, 
Let's look at the, some important lessons from this, this word, this riddle. And not, uh, this obviously, was obviously applied to Belshazzar right there and then. But what can we learn? Because all of us, for all of us, the writing is on the wall. We cannot claim ignorance. First of all, numbered days. Don't live your life pretending that you're going to be around forever. Don't comfort yourself by thinking that even if judgment is coming, it is in the distant future and there's plenty of time to repent and be ready to meet the Lord. Very dangerous plan with eternal consequences. God is not obligated to continually send his spirit to convict us of our sins. In the meantime, we need to pray like the psalmist. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Make every day count for God and his glory. Be wise, don't be stupid. Secondly, the weight of sin. If any of us were to be weighed in the balances, we would also be found wanting. Many have this wrong idea that if your good deeds are more than your bad, then you will make it to heaven. In fact, we will not be able to stand before a holy God based on our own merit. Nowhere close. The weight of our sin is unbearable. Literally. The only one who was able to bear our sins was Jesus Christ on the cross. And through Jesus, the scales are tilting in our favour. Only through him. Even better, through repentance and faith, he transfers his perfect life to us so that we can share eternity with him. His perfect record. Stainless. No stain. Perfect in every way. He gives that to us. In in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thirdly, the losing game. The once powerful Babylonian Empire is effectively finished. In the book of Revelations we read, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, from chapter 18, verse 2. So Babylon has become a a representation of all the failed kingdoms of the earth. Here, one king is gone. In the next chapter, we move to the next king. Darius of the Persians. Then, for all your history buffs, will come the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, the Spanish, the French, the Austrians, the English and the Germans. What we are witnessing right now is the demise of the once great American empire. I'm not making this stuff up. 
Why am I saying this? Because all earthly empires are destined to decay and fail because of rebellion against God, sinful pride, rejection of God and his standards, and we can see it. If that happens to empires out there, it also happens to us on a personal level. This is an important lesson for our own little empires that we have tried to build. There is a stage in life where we try and accumulate education, a name, material stuff. Then the downgrade begins. Our health, our hearing, our eyesight, our joints, we can see it. We can hear it. The downgrade happens from the mansion to the flat to the box that is cremated or buried in the ground. It's a losing game. But that lesson, that physical lesson is also important for us in the spiritual realm. As we mature in the faith, if we want to mature in the faith, we need to lose ourselves. Let go of the pride of life. Jesus said to us, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What if, and I propose to you, that what if instead of considering losing we see our lives as being offered, as as a gift, surrendered to the one who gave himself for you and me. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, and there is a much stronger word that he uses in the original language there. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So whatever, as we conclude, whatever you may or may have or don't have in this world is ultimately irrelevant. It's garbage. Unimpressive. Because if you don't have Christ, then the writing is truly on the wall for you. So if you're here this morning and and you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, what are you waiting for? There's no time to waste, as we sung before, as Belshazzar found out. And if you already given your life to Christ, then you need to follow the, the, the steps of obedience and say, well, I, I, I need to commit my life through baptism. I still haven't done that. Well, what are you waiting for? And if perhaps you have, you're one of those who have not really taken your spiritual life seriously, or God seriously, then you need to recommit yourself to God. 
What are you waiting for? God does not delight in the damnation of the wicked. We read so in the scriptures. He tells us these things in his word to warn us and to direct us to the only way of salvation he has provided. He has done everything that we need for salvation through Jesus Christ. So if you repent of your sin and pride and give your life to Christ, you will truly find the life that is worth living. And you have already surrendered your life to Christ, then take him seriously. Because this is truth. This is life-giving stuff. You're not going to find anything out there. The writing is on the wall, guys. Let's stop pretending that the party is going to continue here. Our God has done all, but the wrath is continuing to be stored for many in this world. Let's tell people about Jesus. Let's tell of his wonderful salvation. As the pressure grows on us as Christians and churches and schools and parents and families, Let's stand up for what we believe. Our Saviour is great and loving and just. And he empowers us through his Holy Spirit. So this morning, if you've been convicted, I, I, I just want to hope and pray that you will come and talk to me or the, to our deacons and elders and tell us, you know, what is, do we need to pray about something? Do we want to want to walk through that spiritual path to grow in the faith, then the doors are open.